John Wesley once said, you have one business on earth to save souls. The truth is, knowing God is the highest calling of mankind. It's the meaning of all human existence, the ultimate goal of every human life and the deepest yearning of every human soul. To know God is to know why you were created and just how profoundly loved and cherished you are. Yet because of sin, we were all born into this world not knowing him. Even worse, we cannot get to him on our own. Doesn't matter how hard you try, under your own steam, you cannot reach God. Doesn't matter if you grew up in church, doesn't matter if you sang in the choir, gave in every offering, or even lived a good life. There's nothing you can ever do under your own power to get to God. See, when you stand before Christ after this life has run its course, He isn't going to ask you which church you attended. He's not going to ask you how many people you prayed for or how many wonderful things you did in your lifetime because if you never actually knew Him, none of that matters. You understand your religious upbringing is of zero value to your eternity if you do not know Jesus. Which is why he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. So, so people who prophesied in his name, People who cast out demons successfully in his name. People who did mighty works in his name. He calls those same people workers of lawlessness. Why? Because they never knew him. You see, you can't get to God on your own terms or by your good works. No matter how hard you try. That's the bad news. The good news is, he knows that. And so instead of waiting for us to somehow work our way to him, he came to us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to pursue a relationship with us, and he's been at it ever since. This is God's passion for you and for me. The fact that he longs for a relationship with you, and yet knowing you cannot get to him on your own, he pursues you. To the point he was even willing to send his son to die for you because he's passionate about a relationship with you. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Revelation 3.20. Understand, you are his passion. Well, you mean to tell me God doesn't have anything better to do with his time and energy than to be passionate about me? No. In fact, he created time itself for you. He existed just fine without us, outside of space and time before we came along. This is why there's a yearning 
to know God present in every human soul. And yet, out of arrogance and ignorance, we naturally search in vain to fill that void with everything but Christ, even though he's the only remedy, the only satisfaction for what ails the human race. A.W. Tozer once wrote, The yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to touch and taste the unapproachable arises from the image of God in the nature of man. Deep calleth unto deep, and though polluted and landlocked by the mighty disaster theologians call the fall, the soul senses its origin and longs to return to its source. How can this be realized? The answer of the Bible is simply through Jesus Christ our Lord. God came to us in the incarnation, in atonement. He reconciled us to himself, and by faith and love we enter and lay hold on him. Knowing Jesus is the only recompense, the only restitution for our sin-stained souls. Knowing him is the only pathway to peace and fulfillment and truth, because knowing him puts every other aspect of our lives into its proper perspective. In fact, there is no other way to correctly understand this world or your place in it apart from knowing Jesus Christ. And yet we cannot know him on our own terms. The truth is it's impossible for man to get to God through human effort and understanding alone. That's why Jesus said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Luke 18, 24 through 27. That's why he said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. And of course, he also said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44. It's also why the Apostle Paul said, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We cannot get to God on our own. That's why he continues to passionately pursue the lost, because lost people don't know they're lost. Not until God draws them to himself and ultimately reveals himself to them through his word. And here's why that should be a profound burden in your life today at least if you're a Christian, because the way that God draws people to himself is through you. That's why it's critical that we're in tune with the Spirit of Christ inside of us, because the desire of the Spirit of God within you is to relentlessly pursue the lost through you. Why? Because lost people don't know they're lost until someone shows them the way. And that someone is you and me as the Holy Spirit guides us. So look, uh, this may rub some people the wrong way. In fact, the truth has a way of doing that. Okay, if you can't remember the last time you told a lost person about Jesus, then chances are you're not listening to his voice in your life or following his leading from day to day because his desire clearly is to passionately pursue the lost through you. So when it comes to making disciples, there's no downtime. There are no breaks from telling other people about Jesus. You understand, bearing witness to the lost about Jesus Christ and his gospel should be a matter of course in your daily life. 
just a, just a part of what comes out of you in your conversation and in your behavior every day. It's born out of a passion for the gospel that is ever working in your own life. It should always be on your mind and ever in your heart to share the love of Christ and the truth of Christ with those who've never experienced either. Because the lost don't know they're lost until someone shows them the way. But you won't do that, at least not as a normal part of your everyday life. You won't do that if you're not passionate about the gospel that's working in your own life first. You know why? Because the things you are passionate about the most are the things your life reflects the most. Your life reflects what you believe. Right? What you're passionate about the most, that's, that's what your life reflects the most, which of course raises an obvious question. Are you passionate for the gospel? Because if you are, then the gospel will inform your decisions. It will drive your conversations. It will ground your relationships. It will anchor your daily life. How you think and feel and react to life and people in your life day in and day out that will be guided by the gospel working inside of you. It's also how other people know that it's real because they see it at work in you every day and how you act and react to people and circumstances and what you say and how you say it and whether or not there's evidence of it being lived out in your own life. It's the point the Apostle Paul's making in the next part of this letter as we'll see as we continue our sermon series, working our way through Romans, uh, that the way God leads others to him is through you. When you're as passionate about the gospel as he is about you. Because that's when it shows up in your own life, as we'll see. So let's pick the story back up where we left off. Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 14. And we're going to go ahead and just read the rest of the chapter. It's only, I think, seven or eight verses left. And then we'll go back and unpack it a bit through the message today. So Romans 10, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. This is where we left off last time. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel do not, not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay, so up to this point in the letter, Paul has taken great pains to show us that God's way is not a matter of a good upbringing or an impressive status in life or a squeaky clean past. In other words, God's way is not one of legalism. Rather, he saves people by grace through faith, as the Gentiles who have come into the church at this point have been prime examples of. It was shocking to the Jewish people because they were considered unclean with, with anything but a squeaky clean past or a good upbringing or an upstanding status in society. And so it's such a profoundly important message. And it's one that Paul is passionate about. In fact, he wants everyone to follow it. He wants all people to come to know and believe and follow the gospel of Jesus Christ, which of course is the central purpose of this entire letter, 
right? E.F. Scott says the, this passage might seem to be only a digression, but it is central to the whole epistle. More plainly than anywhere else, Paul here discloses his purpose in writing as he does to the Roman church. He's coming to Rome in order to make it his starting point for a new mission, and he needs the cooperation of the Christians in the capital. So Paul says, look, this gospel message that I've been telling you about is everything, and it needs to be everything to you if you're a true follower of Christ, because at the end of the day, it all comes down to faith because you cannot get to God any other way. And so if you're not passionate about your faith in Christ and his gospel, how do you expect anyone else to be when you tell them? Right? He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Right? The question is, are you passionate about the gospel? Because the things you're passionate about the most are the things your life reflects the most. I've shared this thought with you before, and uh, I probably will again in Resurrection Sunday in just a few weeks, because honestly, I've never come up with a better way to illustrate this point than this. So listen, if your best friend or your spouse died, and you went to the funeral or the graveside service, and you watched them being lowered into the ground, buried in a casket, and then three days later, you decide to go and visit that gravesite to pay your respects to your best friend or to your spouse, except that when you get there, you find that the gravesite has been dug up, and now it's empty. Right? Think of the utter shock you would feel looking at an empty grave that you saw your friend lowered into. But then as you're walking back home, completely confused, devastated by this unlikely turn of events, your best friend or your spouse walks up beside you full of life and in perfect health. Without question, that event would define every single day of the rest of your natural life. You would never not talk about it. You would never pretend it didn't happen. You would never try to distance yourself from the reality of it. It wouldn't even matter to you that it, that it made some people uncomfortable when you talked about it or they flat out didn't believe you. You wouldn't care. You wouldn't care one bit what anyone else ever thought about the fact that you believed it to be true because you would know that it was the truth because you experienced it firsthand and that's all that would matter to you. Right, the reality that your best friend or your spouse was dead and then came back to life three days later, that would shape the rest of your life no matter what anyone else ever thought. Well, listen, for the Christian, the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ should shape every single day of our lives. We should never not talk about it. We should never pretend it didn't happen. We should never distance ourselves from that reality, even if it makes some people uncomfortable every time we talk about it. Because it's not just some story we believe in. It's a reality that we're living in. The single most important reality of them all. The fact that the same Jesus who was crucified 2,000 years ago for you and for me is alive today. I mean, shouldn't we be passionate about that information? about that story, about what Jesus has done for us? Because look, if, if that's, listen, if that is not true, then what we believe as Christians actually means nothing. It means nothing. But if that is true, well, then what we believe as Christians means everything. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. 
Which, of course, begs the question, why are there so many professing Christians then who are reluctant to share this extraordinary gospel story about Jesus Christ with others? Well, maybe it's because we believe in the story, but we haven't believed it to the degree that we have allowed the reality of it to actually shape our daily lives, to change the way we see God and the way we see others and the way we see our own lives because of what he's done for us and what that says about us as a people. Because I'll tell you, once you come to grips with the fact that the Spirit of God is actually trying to speak to you every day of your life, that He's, he's trying to lead you where you need to go every day of your life, that He's trying to give you what you need to accomplish His will for you every day of your life, when, when you truly believe with a conviction the reality that He is in fact alive and constantly, unceasingly active in your life, on your behalf, I'm telling you, you begin to listen for and pay attention to his voice, and you begin to follow his leading, and you begin to receive what he's trying to give you, and then everything about how you live your life changes drastically. In fact, it has to. It's exactly what happened in Paul's life. Once he finally believed in the gospel, he began living a whole new life. Everything about how he was living before changed. In fact, his life before and after he came to faith in Christ and his gospel couldn't have been any more drastically different. And he was passionate about it because he knew it was the truth. And so he passionately wanted to tell others. Listen, that kind of thing doesn't happen unless you believe it. The reality that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and did what he said he would do, that has to pervade every single area of your entire life. And one of the extraordinary changes that happens when you believe that is that you cannot help but tell everyone else about it. Come on, if your spouse rose from the dead after being in the grave for three days, who would you hide that from? Nobody. You would tell everybody you could. You'd run to the tallest building in Greenville and shout it to the city. Whether they believed it or not. Not my problem. So why do we hide our own faith in the gospel from other people? I know we believe the story, but have we accepted the reality of it in our own lives to the point that our daily lives are shaped by it? Because if you have, you'll be passionately uh, sharing it with other people on a regular basis. And that'll be reflected in your life every day. Why? Because the things you're passionate about the most are the things your life reflects the most. That's a fact. That's why so many Christians, by the way, use social media and personal contacts and texts and tweets and Instagram posts and every other platform they can possibly get a hold of to share with everyone they possibly can their personal beliefs about political issues and governmental issues and the perils of pharmaceuticals and healthier ways to live and our rights that are being slowly taken away in this country and on and on and on it goes. And look, a lot of that is good information that should be shared. But here's the point. Why do we share all of that the way that we do and as much as we do? It's because the things we believe the most in are the things we're most passionate about. And the things we're passionate about the most are the things our lives reflect the most. Charles Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Paul continues. And how are they to believe in him? of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Okay, hearing, 
first of all, is a reflection of first century life. In fact, Paul doesn't even raise the possibility here of the message being read at this point, because although there were people who could read at the time, the average first century citizen depended instead on being able to hear something because most of them didn't read. And so if the message of God was going to be spread in the first century, by and large, it had to be heard. Okay, and, and so for this, a preacher was needed. So faith comes from hearing, he says, and hearing through the word of Christ. And by the way, we shouldn't conflate uh, preaching here with just a Sunday morning sermon, although that may have been included in Paul's meaning. It's certainly not what he primarily had in mind here because the verb he uses for preaching, keruso in the ancient Greek, refers to a herald, a public crier. It's someone who was given a message and told to go proclaim it. Now, who else was given a message and told to go and proclaim it? Jesus said to his followers, to all of his disciples, to the end of the age. So that includes you and me. He said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Mark 16, 15. And that word proclaim in that verse? Yeah, you guessed it. Keruso. It's the same word that Paul uses for preaching. So the question is not only are you passionate about the gospel, but are you passionate about proclaiming the gospel? Because as the church, the body of Christ, we are supposed to be the harbingers of truth and the embodiment of love to a culture that doesn't understand the real meaning of either. So it's incumbent upon us to share the truth of Christ and to show the love of Christ to a world that is literally dying without ever experiencing either one of those. And make no mistake, we have to do both. We must share the truth and show love. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. And I know we all agree with that, but I also think there's a deep misunderstanding in the modern church today about what it looks like to share the gospel because we've confused sharing the truth and showing love with being nice. Now pause there for a minute before you get the wrong idea. Because as Christians, for that matter, as human beings, we should be nice people. Absolutely. In fact, there's nothing worse to me than someone who professes to be a Christ follower and treats other people unkindly. In fact, some of the most unkind people I've known in my life claim to be Christians. That ought not be. Right? But, the, but at the same time, listen, being nice is not always synonymous with sharing truth and showing love. Jesus wasn't always nice to people. During the Passover in John chapter 2, when he made a whip of cords and went into the temple and drove the money changers out and flipped over the tables and poured out their coins while harshly rebuking them, he wasn't being very nice at all. In Matthew 16, 23, when he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. That wasn't a very nice thing to say. Right? In John 20, 27 through 29, Jesus appears to his disciples, proving to Thomas that he'd risen from the dead because Thomas didn't believe the reports of the other disciples that Jesus was alive. So Jesus says to him, put your finger here. See my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, oh, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, oh, you believe because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And Jesus wasn't being very sensitive to Thomas's feelings at that point, was he? That wasn't an especially nice moment between Jesus and Thomas. In fact, Mark's gospel says afterward he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table and he rebuked them. We don't often include that in our communion services. 
He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Mark 16, 14. That was right before he told them to go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Okay, the truth is, we can spend the rest of this sermon just reading through examples of Jesus not being particularly nice to people. And yet, when Jesus wasn't nice, it also wasn't random. It's not that he was in a bad mood that day, so he decided to be unkind to someone. No, every single time that Jesus was not particularly nice to someone, it's because in that moment, being nice would have hindered him from sharing truth or showing love. You understand, that's the benchmark for the Christian when it comes to being nice or when considering the feelings of other people. As followers of Christ, we should always strive to be kind, considerate, nice people, absolutely, unless being nice being considerate of others' feelings means not sharing the truth or showing real love because it might offend them. In that moment, feelings take a back seat to truth and love because our passion for saving the lost with the truth of the gospel should be greater than our compassion for how it might affect someone's personal feelings when they disagree, which seems like an obvious thing to say to a room full of Christians, and yet the gospel historically hasn't always been one of the hallmarks of the modern church, believe it or not. Political involvement, social activism, personal testimonies, cultural awareness, acts of compassion have often been at the forefront of the church more than the gospel message itself. And I understand all those are good things, but those are not the gospel. Even your personal testimony about what God has done in your life, that's good, and you should definitely share it. But do you understand your testimony is not the gospel? Your testimony is your story. The gospel is his story. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission in Matthew, what was to be the singular focus of the church, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And how exactly are we supposed to do that? He says, by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Okay, the way we make disciples is by proclaiming the gospel. The way we evangelize is by proclaiming the gospel. The way we show compassion is by proclaiming the gospel. The way we share the love of Christ is by proclaiming the gospel. The way we engage the culture is by proclaiming the gospel. Well, okay, do we not feed the hungry, clothe the naked, heal the sick, and comfort the hurting? Of course we do. But listen, all of that is nothing more than a byproduct. It's a wonderful byproduct, but nonetheless, it's a byproduct of the proclamation of the gospel. You see, if all of our good works are not accompanied by the proclamation of the gospel, then all we're doing is offering temporary solutions to an eternal problem. The gospel must be the singular and central focus of the church if our social justice and acts of compassion and political involvement and all the rest is to have any lasting meaning at all. Yes, compassion is one of the foundational moorings of the Christian faith. I'm not minimizing it. James, the brother of Jesus, said religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, which we're going to talk about in the next couple of chapters. James 1.27, the apostle Paul wrote, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Colossians 3.12 and 13. Compassion has always been one of the hallmarks of Christianity and therefore the church as well, or, or at least it should be. 
But listen, in the modern age of Christianity, we've been often confused about a passion for the proclamation of the gospel and compassion for the feelings of those who are lost and may be offended by the hearing of it. To the point that we've often either watered down the message or refused to share it at all because we don't want to feel socially awkward. I'm telling you, that kind of misguided compassion is extremely dangerous for this world because that's the kind of compassion that has kept scores of Christians from sharing their faith in Christ openly with those who are lost. In fact, I would say that compassion has probably kept more people out of heaven than hate. That sounds harsh, but I think it's true. Penn Gillette, he's a famous magician. He's half of the act of Penn and Teller. He's an outspoken and passionate advocate for atheism. One time he was witnessed to by a Christian after one of their shows, and although Gillette is still an atheist, he was so impressed by the man's uh, effort unceasingly to tell him about Jesus that Gillette said this. He said, I've always said I don't respect people, he's referring to Christians, who don't proselytize, who don't share the gospel. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He then offered this example to illustrate his own point. He said, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, you didn't believe that a truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you. And this, he said, is more important than that. How can we possibly say we love Jesus and not share the gospel with those who need to hear it? Whether it offends them or not, But listen, you won't share it with others if you're not passionate about it yourself because the things we're passionate about the most are the things our lives reflect the most. And by the way, the fact that some people will not accept the message is actually not your responsibility. Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Right, And then he goes on to quote the prophet Isaiah and Moses and David, which we just read, who foretold the rejection of the gospel by Israel. Not all who hear the message, in fact, most who hear it will not accept it. That is not your responsibility. It's simply to proclaim the message by passionately reflecting it in your own life, in word and in deed. Evangelist Vance Havner once said, it's not our business to make the message acceptable, but to make it available. We're not to see that they like it, but that they get it. And then Paul continues, and how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's interesting that he quotes from Isaiah and Nahum here, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, because in the first century, feet were considered many things, but beautiful wasn't one of them. Why? Because they wore sandals, first of all, and they walked everywhere, so the feet were usually the dirtiest, smelliest, most abused part of the body. But they also represent the profoundly important activity of taking this gospel to the ends of the earth, which is what makes them beautiful, which begs the question. Not only are you passionate about the gospel and passionate about proclaiming the gospel, but are you passionate about living out the gospel? Listen, 
wherever that may lead you. Even if you don't feel qualified to go where he's sending you, because I can tell you from firsthand experience, God is more interested in your heart than he is in your resume. God is not impressed with all of the things that impress mankind. There's no amount of experience, no amount of education, no body of work or any human accomplishment that impresses God. Now, what he's looking for is people with willing hearts. Right? What qualifies you to make disciples is not what you've accomplished for Jesus. It's what he's accomplished for you. Sharing Christ with others has nothing to do with your accomplishments or lack thereof. And yet one of the primary reasons that people give for not answering the call to make disciples to go wherever God leads them or the gospel leads them is they don't feel qualified or worthy because of their weaknesses or failures. It's all the things we've been talking about in the previous chapters, their upbringing or their current status or their past life, sins they've committed, mistakes they've made, the family they were raised in. They've spent years accumulating feelings of shame and guilt and low self-worth to the point that they remove themselves from qualifying for any type of ministry. Listen, once you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins and become a follower of his, your past no longer has a voice in your future. You know why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ that poured down off of that cross 2,000 years ago at Calvary runs deeper than the deepest hurts. It washes away every ounce of sin and shame and guilt that we try to hold on to. Left to the devices of this world where you come from can have great bearing on where you end up in life. But Jesus Christ changes all of that. He changes the course of people's lives every day. And he can take you as far as you're willing to go regardless of your upbringing or your credentials or your past experiences or the expectations of others. I mean, it's wonderful to have a great upbringing, but that's not what defines you when you belong to Christ. When you're his, you are redefined by the author of life itself. Some people really have a hard time with this. In fact, all that you need to answer the call of Christ on your life, to be a disciple who makes disciples, to go wherever the gospel leads you, no matter where that is, is a willing heart. So regardless of how experienced or inexperienced you are in ministry, regardless of where or by whom you were raised, regardless of your experience or lack of, regardless of what you've done or not done in your past, God is not looking for an impressive resume. He's looking for a willing heart. He's the stuttering 80-year-old man, by the way, who had murdered someone to lead an entire nation to freedom. He used a young boy with no battlefield experience to defeat Israel's greatest enemy. He used a prostitute to protect Joshua's men and ultimately bring victory to the people of Israel in the fall of Jericho. He used tax collectors and fishermen to change the world. And he used a murdering Pharisee bent on the destruction of the church to establish his church and write much of the New Testament. When you follow Christ, your past no longer has a voice in your future because God is more interested in your heart than he is in your resume. So stop worrying about what you have or don't have or what you've done or haven't done, and just be willing to say yes to the call of Christ, to make disciples of Christ, and he will use you to do just that in profound ways. God can do far more with your obedience than he can with your talent. 
He's more interested in your heart than he is in your resume. And look, it's great to have talents and abilities and experience and to know what God created you to do and go after it. It's wonderful. But sometimes we can become so confident in our talents and abilities and experience and knowledge and what we already have that we stop relying on the voice of the Holy Spirit to guide us. Instead, we, we stick with what we know. When that happens, if you're not careful, you can become more passionate about your ministry than you are about the message. Right? Don't be afraid to go somewhere. The gospel is leading you, even when it doesn't fit into your ministry model. He's more interested in your heart than he is in your resume. And so sometimes he'll lead you to people and places you don't feel qualified to go to or talk to. Been there, done that. But listen, when your passion for the message is greater than your passion for the ministry model that you're comfortable with, God will use you in ways you didn't even know were possible for you. Because even without the qualifications you think you need, the gospel will shine through you because the things you're passionate about the most are the things your life reflects the most. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. So what are you most passionate about? All you have to do to answer that question is look at how you're living your life today. Where you're going, who you're with. How you spend your time and money and energy. What you think about and talk about. Just look at how you're living your life and you'll know what you're truly passionate about because the thing you are passionate about the most is what your life will reflect the most. So are you? Are you passionate about the gospel? Let's pray.